Well, tonight you're in for a treat, and I think tomorrow as well. So let me take a moment to introduce our speaker to you and kind of get you prepped for that. We're privileged this year to have uh, Pastor Johnny Hunt be our speaker. I want to thank Larry Hickson, first of all, for connecting us to Johnny. Uh, Larry's son, Peter, married Johnny's daughter, Holly. Is that right? And so... Um, I don't know, several months ago, maybe even a year ago, Larry, I, I just said, hey, what do you think about, could you give Johnny a text and just see if he'd be open? And it worked out, and Johnny said, sure, I'd love to. So we were able to <clears throat> book Johnny to come speak for us. Uh, that's a big deal because it's not, um, he's not an easy guy to get on his schedule. So I was really thankful that God just sovereignly oversaw that. Uh, he's just finishing up about 33 or 34 years as pastor of First Baptist Church Woodstock, um, a pretty massive ministry beyond just what their weekly attendance is. Uh, he's been in pastoral ministry about 44 years total, and so he knows a thing or two about this role for sure. And so it's our privilege tonight to have him. But here's what I want you to hear mainly. I mean, we could list off credentials, we could list off stats, and I think that'd be fitting, but I think there's something more I want you to hear about John before he comes, and that is um, he's, he's a pastor's pastor in a lot of ways. He has a school that he runs yearly called the Timothy Barnabas School where pastors go. Um, though I've never been, I remember about year 2000, so about 19 years ago, Larry, uh, I had just started preaching to adults on a regular weekly basis. Prior to that, I'd spoken mainly to kids. Um, I've been preaching weekly since I was 20 years old, but a lot of that was just in youth ministry. And so at about 2000, I began to speak to adults on a regular basis um, at Grace West Church, and Larry and Sandy were there. And within a matter of months of beginning that role, Sandy brought me this, um, <clears throat> like, pint, maybe it's a gallon, I don't know, but it was just this freezer bag full of cassette tapes. That's how long ago this was, right, guys? And she said, Todd, um, just listen to this guy. It'll tell you a lot about preaching. And, and in a lot of ways, I kind of cut my teeth on Johnny's preaching. It was a, it was a gallon-sized freezer bag full of cassette tapes by Johnny Hunt. And she gave me four or five of them. And so it was about a 25-minute drive from my house in Ankeny to Ashworth Road in West Des Moines. And so for at least three, what, about three years, I'd listened to almost one on the way out there. On the way home, I listened to another one. So I got about two a day in. Um, and then when I finished up the three bags, I took them back to Sandy. She said, great. And she gave me three more bags. Now, looking back, I'm thinking they were saying, man, Todd needs help. We've got to give him all the help we can get, right? And I need a lot of help still. But I will tell you, I remember hearing hundreds of sermons and just learning a lot about preaching, uh, pastoring, and just hearing how to approach issues, how to talk to your congregation. And I just am personally thankful that... Um, God put him in my life via cassette tapes, and now to have it be here personally is kind of special for me. Hope you'll welcome him and learn from him as well. So, Johnny, wherever you are, I'm not sure if I can even see you in this crowd of these lights. There you are. Help me welcome Johnny Hunt, would you? Now, I'm surprised he'd have me if he's heard me that much. I uh, really am. I, uh, uh, you just never know, all right? So... Uh, there you have it. Hey, it is a joy to be with you. It really is. If uh, someone were to say, what are some of your favorite things to do? Uh, one is to speak into the life of men. Um, 
I wrote a statement years ago, and then I'll tell you the context in which I wrote it. I said that men are the untapped reservoir of useful energy for the kingdom of God. Uh, I, uh, at one time in my life, I thought this. If the Lord Jesus would perchance give me the privilege to lead a church upon which the ministry, the sun would never set. I would never be able to do it without men. Uh, bottom line, I mean, men and their resources and in their commitment and their service, it makes a difference. And so I started a men's conference. Next weekend, we host year number 28. And uh, we started that men's conference because I've got a burden. I fasted for a period of time. And asked me, asked God to speak through me to our men. And so the Lord uh, raised it up. We've been doing it on Super Bowl Sunday weekend for 28 years. And uh, until the Super Bowl came to Atlanta and we changed the week because the hotel prices went up too high when the Super Bowl was in Atlanta. And then, and I just say this and really to God be the glory because uh, you'll hear a little bit about my story always working into my sermon. But I was raised by a single mom. Dad checked out when I was seven. So I had, she never remarried. So there was not a, a, a male figure in my life to be the man, the father, to lead uh, me. And yet uh, here when Jesus uh, became my heavenly father, uh, what an incredible difference it made. And God restored what the locusts have eaten. So I was recognized last year at the Southern Baptist Convention as hosting the largest men's conference in a local church in the United States. So how, how can God take a kid not raised with a father and give him one of the largest ministries to men in America? And I'm not going to go any further. If you pull me aside, I'll probably tell you, but it's uh, tens of thousands will come to us next week by way of simulcast or in the room. And it's just, it's remarkable. It's a God thing. And so I love to be with men. When I lead these, I often say, now, you know, you've got to tell your wives, thank God for women. Where would we be without the women? Well, biblically, if I get it right, we'd be in the garden. But anyway, uh, uh, and then we strike that from the tape, all right? We don't get that out there on the tape. But that's just a little humor to make sure you're listening. And uh, there. If there were women in the room, some, something to be thrown at the stage about now. Um, I, I do appreciate Larry, and uh, he has a wonderful son uh, that married my daughter and gave us two grandchildren. In fact, the oldest grandchild has cerebral palsy. She'll be here visiting. I'm sure y'all see her around church in a few weeks. She's 18, and she is absolutely full of life and really blessed even with the, the, the terrible... Um, Issues that she has with cerebral palsy, a very special, special need, and God uses her to do special things in our life. And then we have a granddaughter we share that's getting ready to turn 16. Her name's Addie, and that's a good name because she has an attitude. Uh, but no, she's a darling little girl. But uh, Hope, our special needs girl, is staying with my wife tonight. They are, have a real special bond. So I love you, Larry, and thank God for you and Pastor Honored um, to be here. L let me tell you a little bit about tomorrow morning. Hope you can join us. If not, I hope you'll uh, get tapes if they're um, taping this with cassettes. <laughs> but anyway, or, or some eight tracks. But um, 
I'm going to speak. I wrote a message on the conscience, and uh, as I've shared it, and I'm, uh, a lot of people maybe have dealt with it, but 90% of the place I speak have never heard an entire sermon on the conscience. What is the conscience? And how does God use the conscience? Where all does the Bible reference the conscience and what words describe the conscience? And so uh, I think it's really what's happening in America. Uh, when, uh, matter of fact, if you'll listen carefully to the news, when we hear of um, just an, uh, uh, an awful murder scene, and you, a commentator may say, the man could not have had a conscience. Yes, he did, does have a conscience. Uh, God, a conscience is a gift, something God places within you, and I'll tell you how it operates, and then how it gets defiled. What does it mean to have a seared or defiled conscience, and, and how to keep a good conscience? So, Lord willing, tomorrow. And then, then I wrote a message, because uh, we're talking about sort of going the distance. And Paul um, kept us in athletic arenas, uh, whether it was a race, and we'll look at that tomorrow, or even a night, that it was a fight. Uh, how many of you would be willing to admit in your heart that if the Christian life consisted of 12 rounds, but there's some rounds you've not done so well in, uh, maybe even got knocked down at one of the rounds? And uh, Paul even said this. He had been knocked down. He literally said this. He'd never been knocked out. Here's another thing theologically. Uh, we're in a fight, but thanks to Calvary, the fight's been fixed. Yeah, that was good. If you were looking for a place to say amen, that was an awesome opportunity. But the fight has been fixed because I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus, we're going to win not because of the way we responded, but because of what he did. And I thank God. And even as we sang there, it's, you magnify the righteousness of God. And the bottom line is you can't go to heaven without the righteousness of God. And, and it's his righteousness uh, that is our robe, that is our entrance into that city. So if you, you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'm going to teach from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'm going to just be basic and talk tonight about men that are faithful. And, and I'm going to talk about what you have to avoid and what you have to assimilate. You know, it's amazing. Uh, I, um, being raised by a single mom, I quit school at 16. And then I started uh, hanging out at a pool hall, a billiard hall. And then I started playing. And then I started managing the pool hall. And then I started playing eight hours a day. And then I began to hustle. And when I was 20 years old, I was playing second string in the tournaments in America. And so headed on my way. I told pastor, it's really strange, but somebody, I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina, and someone reached out to me this week from Wilmington and said there was a discussion about pool and the guys that are really playing well that never were converted out of kind of the life that I was in. And they, some of them are pretty professional now. And they said somehow or another your name came up that had you stayed in, None of them could beat me back in those days. And I, that was my goal when I was 20 years old, to become a professional pool player until somebody cared enough to invite me to church. And by the way, that's how 85% of the people come to faith in Jesus Christ is somebody gives a simple invitation. I'm an evangelist at heart. I share my faith. I love to engage people in the gospel. But still, there is nothing that trumps 
I'd like for you to join me. I'm leading a national initiative that you are getting ready to introduce here at your church. And then uh, Tim uh, has invited me back, uh, Labinus, Lord willing, uh, soon to lead a, a statewide event uh, here, right? We're hosting here. And it's called Who's Your One? It's a national tour I'm doing. And really, we're asking everyone to just say, Lord, lay uh, just one soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And then we put together a little bookmark, and on mine is the name Percy. And uh, Percy is an African-American friend of mine that I'm trying to lead to Christ. And so I texted him the other day, and here's what it went like. Hey, Percy, I'm preaching at Woodstock Sunday. Join me for the third service. My wife and I will save you a seat down front. And after the service, I want to take you to Tuscany's to eat Italian food. And in a few minutes, he texts back and said, what an incredible offer. I'll be there. And he was. So he heard the gospel. Then we went to lunch and we engaged him in the gospel. I've not led him to Christ yet. Uh, he's got his heels dug in pretty deep. We've had some great discussions, but it's intentionality. I've led other people to the Lord since I've been after him. But uh, so we want to really do what's most important. And that is help him to come to, to faith in Christ. So Lord willing, we'll be back soon if they don't change their mind after hearing me this weekend and uh, to share that with you. So men that are faithful. So let's dive in. Verse number 11. Um, but you, O man of God, and let me just make a statement. It's the only place in the, in the New Testament that it references those words, man of God. And, and I, I've often thought in my heart, Paul um, mentored Timothy, led Timothy to faith in Christ. And he referred to him up until this time, every time he mentions him in Timothy, he refers to him as a son in the faith. What it must have meant to hear the great apostle Paul one day reference him as a man of God. I'll tell you what I'd have done. I'd have said, would you write that down? I'm going to a pastor's conference and I want to Show them what the Apostle Paul called me. And, uh, and you know he continued the ministry in the city of Ephesus uh, because of this man of God. So here's, here's a, uh, a mentor to a mentee. And he says, I, I want you to know, O oh man of God. And then he's going to talk about to avoid. And coming out of the life I did, uh, my testimony was a lot of, hey, Jesus came into my life and being around a pool room, I felt a lot like Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said when he got saved, he lost 80% of his vocabulary. And so I, I felt that way. So I used to tell people, I say, it's a miracle of God. Since I got saved, I don't cuss anymore. And, and, and I mean, because it just naturally flowed from me. And, and I'll be honest, I, I got drunk on a regular basis. And I said, and I, I became a teetotaler. You may not be one, but you should be. But anyway, bottom line is, I'm a teetotaler. And there's some things I avoid in, in my life. And, 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 but it's not just there. And a lot of times somebody says, well, it's not what you stopped doing, brother. It's what you started doing. There's a lot of good statements out there that don't bear truth to the word of God. So here's the man of God, the greatest missionary statesman that ever lived apart from Jesus Christ. Gave us 13 New Testament books. And he said, there's some things you ought to avoid. You ought to flee. You ought to be like a fugitive. You're a man on the run from this stuff. No, don't let it catch you. It'll pull you down. And then he says this. He says, um, 
pursue righteousness. So yeah, there, there are some things. There's some stuff to avoid, and when you pursue something, you want to simulate it into your life. There, there's some things I want to do. I'm going to talk about that. Some things I can, can do in my life that help me to mature into a man of God. And he says, pursue righteousness and godliness, faith and love and patience and gentleness. And there, here's our theme. Fight the good fight of faith. Uh, and this is an interesting statement. Lay hold of eternal life. And he's talking to people that are already saved. So what do you mean, lay hold of it? So it's uh, something that we need to do in our own heart. There's a lot of... A lot of men in particular have never laid hold of eternal life. Uh, they've been saved, but they've never really, in what it's called a middle voice, it means in and of themselves, they've just never with calm assurance been able to say, I know that if I drew my last breath, I know I'm going to heaven. And I'm just telling you, if you don't have a real confident assurance in your confession, I doubt you're going to go around and tell someone else about it. And so he says, lay hold of this. Hey, John, grab hold of this in your own life to which you were also called and you've confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Can you possibly think of a greater designation which speaks of spiritual characteristic than to be called a man of God? Again, listen to the sweetness and strength of these words. My dad, my father, is a man of God. I did a funeral for a 93-year-old man outside of Orlando, Florida yesterday. He was my senior associate's dad. His name's Jim Law Sr. He was one of the most consistent men I've known for the last 30 years. And I, I could honestly say, boy, I tell you, Jim, such a man of God. Uh, what, what words? I'll be honest, when I'm... Uh, gone, if some, when someone does my um, service, if they could say, hey, I knew Pastor Johnny and was with him in a lot of different uh, venues and a lot of places around the world, and he was consistently a man of God. I'll be honest, I don't know of any greater honor in my life than to be called a man of God. So an encouragement, encouraging statement is found in these words in that God does not call the equipped. God equips the called. So he's in the process of equipping us to become what he's calling us to be. So the passage we're studying uses words that are not difficult to grasp that help us to clearly see what the man of God looks like. So if someone were to say this, hey, my friend down at the church, he, he's a godly man. He's a man of God. How would you define that to someone else? So someone was with you and they just weren't used to that terminology. And, and they said, well, what did he mean by man of God? What, what does it even look like if this is what I really desire to be? So the Apostle Paul realizes that lots of forces, this is so true, attempt to pull down our men. We, we've never lived in a generation where there were so many distractions and so much competing with faithfulness to the kingdom of God. No, never. And people are so bold today. I sat with some dear brothers over here, and we had great engaging conversation, I think. I thought we did. And um, I have a racing family, and I'm not much into it. My wife loves it, and she loves NASCAR. But, you know, I fellow not long ago came up and said, man, I'm 
Georgie message, and I, I'm looking. I want to hear that part too. But uh, man, I tell you, I'm going. I'm going to NASCAR. I'll get you tape. Well, I thought if he's going to be bold, why don't I just get bold? I'm pretty bold. So I just said, uh, "Hey, I got an idea. Why don't you come to church where you ought to be on the Lord's Day and tape the race?" But anyway, it didn't go. Well. He didn't come. <laughs> but anyway, but I told him. So. Um, uh, there's this passion and encouragement. He paints the portrait. There's a portrait in this text. So I hope that draws you in to what a man of God looks like. So one very helpful textual approach is that contrasting the man of God with the one who has his affections and his attention and his aim on the world only. And that's really what happened in verse uh, chapter 6, verse 5, before you get to verse 11, he's really talked about really men that aren't walking with God. They're not right. Uh, question if most of them are not even believers. So the text concerns itself with the private and public life of us as men. Uh, it's these scriptural admonishments when they're embraced and obeyed uh, Paul, it seems as though he's saying, Timothy, these will assure you success in life's causes and ministries. So with that in mind, let me just give you three uh, overarching thoughts. Number one, let me talk to you first negatively. And sometimes the Bible does speak negatively. So somebody may just say, I don't know, I went to hear Pastor Johnny and, and the message was just negative. There, there's negative aspects to the Bible. And then there's positive aspects to the Bible um, that we should assimilate. So he begins negatively by telling us what a man of God should avoid. So if you notice there in verse number 11, he, he reminds us of who he's talking to. He says, but you, and, and why, why the language? But you, it's a sharp contrast of Timothy with the false teachers of the preceding verses. In other words, you can't miss the intensity of Paul's appeal. The man of God realizes there's certain things that have to be avoided at all costs. Uh, well, we're living in a generation that's going around in there, and, and I love the verse they're using because I think it's the one that should be convicting them. And they'll say, well, I'll tell you, I, I just got more liberties in my life than that, brother. I, I feel like he's just too strict in his walk, and I got liberties. Well, Galatians 5.13 uh, talks about that liberty. It says, only don't use liberty um, for the occasions of the flesh. Uh, so you just got to be careful. I mean, what the Bible teaches us. I, um, since I've been writing uh, three sermons that I'll share at my men's conference a year for 28 years. I've already written my messages, new messages for next week. So Lord willing, next week at this time, I will be with our men in a men's conference. But a couple of years ago, I, uh, I wrote this title and, and thought through it for a while. The Trilogy of Man's Struggles. So, Pastor Johnny, in your opinion, 28 years of writing, I brought a few books with me. I most requested book I've ever written in my life, I wrote two years ago, entitled Demolishing Strongholds. And then I was telling... Uh, my assistant that's traveling with me, Chris, uh, just got an email uh, before I came here tonight 
from Focus on the Family. And Jim Daly said, will you come? I want to interview you. I've just read your book, Unspoken, What Men Won't Talk About and Why. So I just thought that was neat that that just happened a few minutes ago. But what is the trilogy of man's struggle? So here's what I think. I'll give you three thoughts. One, pride as it pertains to our ego. Um, you can find it in chapter 6 and verse 4. It was the issue with the false teachers, arrogance and pride. And, and we've all got to deal with pride. You've heard this. It's as simple as we can teach it. The problem with pride is the, right in the middle of that word is an I. And that's the problem. Uh, Satan was cast from heaven. His name was Lucifer, for he was the star of the morning. Theologians believe that Satan at one time was almost a, a musical instrument. People, people kid every now and then and they'd say, when God kicked the devil out of heaven, he landed in the choir. But don't even know why they said that. He, he was a, a musical being. Uh, giving praise to God. But there came a day, Isaiah 14, six times he said, I will exalt myself above the throne of the Most High. He, he, he wanted the glory that belonged only to God. That's what pride does. He can give God the glory. If somebody says, man, um, that was a great sermon. Boy, God be the glory. Sometimes you may think, well, I'm the one that wrote it. You know, so... Uh, Ego, and remember Paul even said that God did him a favor and gave him a thorn in the flesh, uh, 2 Timothy 12, uh, lest he be exalted above measure in his life. God did some significant things with him, but he remained humble. And I don't know that I could have handled what God gave Paul. If the Lord sent me to heaven, I don't think I could wait 14 years to tell you. Pride as it pertains to ego. Number two, greed as it pertains to money. Uh, in chapter 6 and verse 5, verse 17, verses 9 and 10, it refers to greed and covetousness. Hey, this is interesting. Um, hey, Pastor, got an encouraging word for you. Question was asked uh, at our table. T tell us about this church. How would you describe it? And they said... Uh, we got a pastor that's biblical, stands firm without compromise on the word of God. So what a compliment. So listen to this statement. In the Bible, on about three different occasions, like in Colossians, Ephesians, and Corinthians, theologians refer to a list that uh, Paul would write as a sin list. You'll read sometimes it says, now that you're in Christ, put off, and it lists all these things. It's a sin list. And then it says, and put on, and it's kind of like a get rid of this garment and get that out of your life, and now put this into your life. In the sin list, only one word is used that is defined. He says, strip off lewdness, but he don't tell what lewdness is. Strip off adultery, fornication, but he doesn't define them. None of them, but one word. The only word he defines is covetousness. That's interesting. By the way, covetousness is a compound word. In the New Testament, it means more to want. 
Yeah, it's hard to get a man to give when the offering plate's passed when he wants more than he's already got. That's why a person don't give. You may say, I can't afford to give. Well, I disagree. I believe if you're walking with Jesus, you can't afford not to give. Yeah, that was strong. <laughs> but listen to this. When he gets to covetousness, he says, and lay aside covetousness, which is idolatry. That's interesting. I'm glad God showed me that. So what he's saying is when you are greedy, you have elevated something as a, your money has become an idol in your life. And then the Proverbs just talks about how it creates all these issues. And matter of fact, uh, when, when, I, when if, if you were to go knock on doors and say, hey, I'm Johnny, hun, I'm going to start a church in this community and you folks, you don't go to church anywhere. If I was going to start a church, what kind of church would you want to attend? Normally, the number one thing they'll say, I'd like to go to a church where they don't talk about money. You, this is pretty strong, but the reason most people don't want you to talk about money is they don't appreciate you talking about their God. It's an idol. We've elevated above God. Um, he's in heaven now. He lived just north of Atlanta. His name was Larry Burkett. And Larry Burkett uh, wrote about money and challenging people to give. And he gave that one-liner. God really used it in my life. said, the, the more you make, the only way you can keep from becoming materialistic is become a more generous giver. So if God's giving you a lot, it's not so you can buy more. It's so you can give more and you will find that the greatest joy in life at the older you get it's not by what you have received but the blessed privilege and this is interesting and uh, acts 24 the bible says it it says and as jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive and this is interesting uh, as a student of the bible where did jesus say that and you can't find it you can't find it anywhere in the bible Here's a quote in, uh, in red, red letters, and you can't find where he said it. So you have to go to the theologians and historians and say, how do you deal with a text like that? And here's the common theological answer. You didn't have to trace it anywhere. It means it was a normal, regular statement about every time you were around him. He'd say, by the way, uh, it's more blessed to give than receive. He said it so many times it was his normal love language. So greed, money, covetousness, and then lust as it pertains to sex. That's the trilogy of man's struggle. If we can get our pride right, our greed right, and our lust right, and I know some of you are thinking now, that's three biggies. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is. And so he says, oh, man of God. And by the way, how do you define man of God? It deals with one who believes on him, belongs to him, and behaves like him. Let me say that again about a man of God. He believes on him. He belongs to him. And he behaves like him. So the title is indicative of a person who is maturing. And again, it is only used here in the New Testament. Nowhere else in the New Testament do you find this word. So that's the who. But then the what. He says, flee these things. And I've got to put this thing in high gear. The word from which we derive flee is the word we get fugitive. Now, you got to have a little age on you. But I used to every week watch the fugitive. Do you remember the fugitive? 
He had gray hair is the reason I ask, all right? But, uh, but that dude, st- he was on the run, weren't he? Every week you watched an hour episode, Will They Catch Him? Will, they, will he find the one-armed man that really killed his wife because he's on the flea and he didn't do it? He's a fugitive. And the Bible says that you and I are spiritual fugitives. And we're on the run. It's present tense. It means we consistently, emotionally flee. So we should flee anything that hinders the progress or lowers the standard of the life we are to pursue. I love to do commercials. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to define the difference in a weight and a sin. Uh, as a pastor, when I'm on a plane, I love talking to people on the plane. They, they'll just say, so you, you live in Des Moines? No, sir. I live northwest of Atlanta. I'm really from North Carolina. Oh, yeah. So what do you do for a living? I'm a minister of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And you mean like you like you a preacher? Yes, sir. Like you like you got a church? That's how it goes. I love it. Yep, got got a church. And uh, you know, I've always wanted to ask. Now you're up there. Listen, you're sitting in a seat, and I'm telling you, you can hear a pin drop when this happens. When they find out there's a preacher sitting there, I've always wanted to ask a preacher. Now I could tell you the number one questions I'm asked on a plane, but it's like this. Always want to ask for you. Do you think this is a sin? And I always respond and say, <laughs> does it really matter what I think? I mean, serious, come on. Does it matter what I think? But then to ask this, and now everybody's listening around you. You've got about 12 in your congregation now. And it comes something like, something like, it's Christian life is so exciting and dynamic. I, the dog, if I'm allowed to let it get dull when I'm having fun with them. And, and then I'll just say, um, don't really matter what I think. Hey, but you got an opinion, but that, my opinion's no more than your opinion. Would you like to know what God said? Boy, that gets them. And they're listening. I say, God said. Because, you know, people leave church. If you don't like what we say, you just say, oh, I don't know that I agree with that preacher. Well, if you've got your blessed Bible open, you're not agreeing and disagreeing with the preacher. You're just using my name because I'm easier to take on than for you to go out and say, I disagree with God. So we need to flee. And, and then he even uses a word in verse 5 because he's referencing back. It says, withdraw yourself. In other words, we should turn our backs and run away from anything that is calculated to hinder the Christian experience. There, there's some stuff that'll hurt us. I mean, it really, really will. So Paul carefully avoids any appearance of loving money, and, and he would deal with that. Uh, the reason he was a tent maker is he didn't want to be accused of uh, loving money. Uh, you know, it's just a question. I, I love to study my Bible. I study it uh, every day of my life. But the thing that I, I ask questions every now and then, Lord Jesus, look at all Paul did. How, how much more could he have done if he hadn't had to be a tent maker for 18 months over in car rent? Uh, listen what he said to the Ephesians elders in Acts 20, verse 33. I've coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. Uh, apparel. You, you, yes, 
you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And then he throws it in there and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said. And then it's red letter. It's more blessed to give than receive. So why do men get in trouble? Not taking God's word and God's warnings seriously. And then I just wrote this statement and I'll move to a second thought. If we flee, where do we run to? Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. So negatively, there's some things I need to avoid. Uh, boy, I've got to watch it in the area of my sex life. Uh, I've got to watch it in the area of money, money. Money can ruin you. Boy, if you've never read it, you, you ought to take time when you get home tonight to look at 1 uh, Timothy chapter 6. And you ought to read uh, down verse 9 and following what it says about money. So uh, if somebody said to me, I, I want to go to a church where they won't talk about money. Um, they say that the reason we have the divorce rate we do in America, the, they say number one reason is a lack of communication. The number two reason for divorce in the United States is fighting over money. And uh, I, I have a theory. Uh, the reason communication is number one, they can't talk because they're mad about money. <laughs> so I believe it's one and two. So then positively, what does he assimilate? So, okay, Pastor Johnny, say I'm asking God help me with, with struggles. I have a, a, a Christian psychologist a very godly Ph.D. psychologist that's pastored megachurches a good bit of his life. His name's Charles Lowry. And Charles and I do a lot of events together. And Charles just said this. He said, most men, and, and I found it, it was true in my life. He said, most men only struggle with like one major thing. If they could just get that one area right. In fact, that's where the devil will step in and say, you're not doing bad. I mean, good night. Nobody's perfect. And you let that one area rob you. Adrian Rogers has been in heaven for 15 years. He, he was my mentor. Bellevue Baptist Church wrote the first forward to the first book I wrote over 20 years ago. Dr. Rogers said one time, said, John, if your life is 100 acres, the devil would be satisfied if you'd give him one. He would just like to choose where it's located. He'd get it right in the center of your life, which would give him access from every angle. And he would take that one. And Satan is never satisfied with the amount of you that he possesses. He always wants more. So positively, what does he assimilate? So their separation from uh, without positive growth becomes isolation. So we've got to cultivate the virtues and graces of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Or else we'll be known only for what we oppose rather than what we propose. I, I wrote a sermon. You'd have to date it by the week that Princess died. died. I delivered the sermon and it was a three-month research. And I'd been asked to write it. It was entitled, A Biblical Commitment to Total Abstinence. It's the number two requested sermon I've ever written. Number two, the biblical commitment to total abstinence. Anything I mentioned, johnnyhunt.com is there. And I talked about why I was a teetotaler. And by that way, the way, that word was uh, uh, given to us by the Wesleyan Church, the teetotaler. 
And so I talked about why I believe that Christians should abstain from alcoholic beverage. And so you disagree, but I'm just telling you, God has used that sermon. Uh, I went up to preach at Liberty University. Your student pastor was just telling me he heard me up there. Uh, some back, I used to do a lot of their spiritual emphasis weeks, and I'd preach for Dr. Falwell a lot. And so Dr. Falwell got hold of the sermon and said, in his humble opinion, he, he thought it was one of the best he ever heard. So he said, I'm going, you know, they had required chapel anyway. He said, I'm going to require every faculty member. They took out billboards and went in divine center with over 10,000 people for me to deliver the message. And the first 3,000 in the door got a copy of the CD of it. And so I preached it there that day. And then he told me, he said, now, as soon as we can, I want you back at Thomas Road. And I want you to preach it to Thomas Road and to my TV audience. And I said, boy, let's wait a while, Dr. Falwell. And he said, why? I said, I'm going to just be known for what I'm against. And he said, well, are you for something? What are you for? <laughs> and, and, and so really, if you, I don't want to just be known only for what I oppose, but also for what I propose. So that's what the scripture does. So here's what he does. He said, don't just avoid this, John. Pursue this. Follow after. Keep on pursuing. Make these things your life pursuit. Constantly strive. Constantly strive. A.T. Robinson, they refer to him. He's from Oxford. They, they would say of A.T. Robinson that he's the single greatest Greek scholar ever produced within the context of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I love his writings. He said that this word pursue is a vivid verb and it's a present active imperative. It's a command. I command you to do these things. This is not, not a suggestion if you want to be better in Sunday school. It is a command if you want to be a man of God. Wow. Um, I journal. Not all the time, but a good bit of the time. That's hard uh, for me. You, if you do it well, may your tribe increase. But I, when I read, every now and then I have a thought. And I'll write it down. And I'm telling you, when I write it down, I keep it. And then it becomes part of a book. I might even be able to formulate a chapter from it. But here's what I wrote recently. I've found that most of the things I'm good at, I did not get there by love, but by discipline. But after I became disciplined, I began to love it. I ran for years and years and years and years. Now I'm a speed walker. And so I, I walk a lot uh, every week. But I'm not going to walk out there tomorrow. <laughs> I'd never owned a Bible until the morning after I was converted. But every morning, I get up and I dive into the Word of God. I'm reading now chapter, chapter, Chapter by chapter in Isaiah. I read the Proverbs every morning. Been reading Oswald Chambers for over 25 years. Number one devotion in the world. I visited his gravesite recently in Cairo, Egypt. He died in 1917. He had never written a book. Since he died, 50 books have been published from the notes that he had. The believer cannot afford to not take temptation seriously. 
So the language pictures a man running away from something, but at the same time, he's running towards something. 2 Timothy 2.22 would put it this way. Flee also youthful lust. By the way, let me translate that for you. Flee also youthful lust. Why do we call lust youthful? Because that's when you started lusting, is in your youth. And you're still dealing with what captured you when you were young. Any of you that have children, mine were girls. I've got a grandson that's 20. But you've got boys, and can you remember when the boys, you would kid with them maybe and say, that's a cute little girl, and ooh, no, ooh, that didn't last long. And then the enemy works, and it becomes lustful. So he says, uh, flee youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call, wait a minute, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And it's a challenge to all of us. No purity, no power. If I really desire to have the power of God on my life, I've got to practice purity. Uh, Paul knew that if he stops, what is behind him will catch him and attempt to pull him down. Why do you read the Proverbs every day? Uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, their absolute entireties deal with sexual sin. Um, in chapter 6, in verse 24 through 26, it says that sin pursues you. It uses a word. It says uh, sin is, in sexual sin, is trying to ambush you. And it said it is actually pursuing you. You don't have to go looking for sin. Sin comes looking for you. You recommit your life to Jesus Christ and you will be in the battle for your soul. So if I desire to be a man of God, uh, these characteristics uh, help ensure my effectiveness and reaching the goal is again going the distance. If you, you know, prize fighter doesn't train for the fight, and if he loses, he trains harder, studies the enemy. Does he not? To be able to win. Uh, what do you do in a football game during halftime? You go in and watch videos of what just happened and what we've got to change. And, and the same thing. And we're in a battle. So these words speak of character and conduct. So let me say a word about character, and I'm just give you these pretty quickly. First of all, he begins with what righteousness looks like externally. Now, I like this as practical, not just something I possess, but how it plays out in my life. So what does it mean when it says, and pursue righteousness? It means to do what is right in relation to God and man. Uh, it does not refer to Christ's righteousness imparted at salvation, but to holy living of our lives. It's the outward living of his inward life. It's, it's a life marked by obedience to God and his word. If God shows me an area of my life, I pray God help me to be obedient. Uh, when I'd been at Woodstock 25 years on my anniversary, the gift they gave me was you no longer work in July. That was the gift. 25 years. Just been all this preaching. I did four services for 17 years on Sundays. And he said, man, you've really given your life. We want to 
give you some time off. So every July, you're off. So what I would do is, is I would really sabbatical and rest and spend time with the family and children and grandchildren and, and just do some things I like to do, read some stuff I wanted to read, visit some place I wanted to visit. But I would always take on a personal assignment. And so a couple of years ago, I took on the assignment. Here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to spend my summer studying sanctification. And, and some of you know, it's a big word. It's not a big word. Uh, if there's no sanctification, it's because there's been no salvation. Sanctification is the outflow of salvation. So I studied it. So I would, I would uh, Google uh, sermons on sanctification. I listened to men, some I knew, some I didn't know. I would find articles uh, and read. Everything I could just get hold of each day, a couple of hours, sermons, reading. And I, I ended up formulating, I didn't do it for that, but I, I got so encouraged by what I was finding. And so I defined sanctification. So let me give it to you. Jesus overcoming me. I mean, the bottom line is we oftentimes are in a battle. We have an addiction in our life, and we're not able to overcome. I just need to surrender to God and say, Jesus, I just have not been able to break this. Uh, Jesus, overcome me. God, I beg you. And, and I really believe at that point of obedience, God will meet us with divine enablement. But it's a life marked by obedience. I'm going to... I'm going to do what's right. And if you show me some areas of my life that's not right, I'm going to get right. Then godliness, internal. Righteousness, he took it from external. Godliness, internal. Right behavior flows out of right motives and a right attitude. So this word can refer to reverence for God, flowing out of a worshiping heart. Godlikenessing. It's imaging our Lord. It's really like we all have someone in our life that will say this. I love being with that man. He, every time I'm with him, just being with him encourages me. He, uh, he's as much like Jesus as anyone I know. Everybody's had someone like that in their life, I trust. So it's the reverence of the man who never ceases to be aware, this is good, that all of his life has lived in the presence of God. Practicing the presence of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon referred to these truths as the minister's self-watch. It speaks to the importance of watching over ourselves. Let me tell you what brings humor, and I never, I never said it to mean humor, so I've set you up so you wouldn't laugh when I say it. But here it is. I've been a pastor 44 years, and in the 44 years of pastoring thousands of people, I've never had as much trouble with anybody as I have with me. I'm telling you, when I'm in, in study in the morning in devotion and I get on my knees, and the reason I get on my knees is Charles Stanley mentored me and Dr. Stanley said, and I'd say, Dr. Stanley, teach me something today when I would meet with him and here's what he said one time. He said, I've never found anything I cannot overcome on my knees. And it just, it's a good posture. It just reminds me that he is Lord. And, it, uh, and by the way, if you're, you're just praying, and I'm not trying to be ugly, I'm just tell you how I process something. Um, many times when you're praying, you may be sitting in a chair reading, and you just pray from there. But if you're desperate, the chair won't do. 
You'll find yourself on your knees before God. And then if you're real desperate, that doesn't do. Your nose is in the carpet. Adrian Rogers said God dealt with him. I drove to the place to see this because this life been packed to me so much. It was in uh, West Palm Beach. And he said that God dealt with him and he was out on a ball field. And he said he just stood there and began to pray. And God continued to break him. And he said he knelt in the dirt and began to pray. And he said then he knelt and laid his, his face in the dirt. And then he said it weren't low enough. He dug a hole in the dirt and put his nose in it. It just depends on how desperate you are for Jesus. Paul would put it this way in Acts 20 and verse 28. Take heed to yourself and be on guard for yourself. 1 Timothy 4.16 would say, pay close attention to yourself. Wow. One Puritan said it's easier to declaim against the thousand sin of others than to mortify one sin in ourselves. Sometimes we leave church and we think, I tell you, that was a good word. Man, I wish Bubba had been here. I guess y'all have Bubba's up here too. Here, and they <laughs> multiplied in the South. Uh, John Owen said, a minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what the minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. Wow. Then he talks about his conduct. Here it is quickly. I've done four or five minutes and I'm through. Faith is a confident trust in God for everything. He, he trusts God to keep and fulfill his word. It involves loyalty to the Lord and unwavering confidence in him. And then he says love, and it's unrestricted and unrestrained. It's encompassing love for others. It's uh, love for God, love for others, love for non-believers. It's loving the Lord, loving the others. Uh, William Barclay refers to this love as the four facets of the priceless diamond of love. He said you are to have love for the unknown, love for the unlovely, love for the unprofitable, and love for the unfriendly. Wow. Patience speaks of perseverance, endurance. It remains that some, that means sometimes you're under it and you remain under it. It's not a complacency to wait, but a courage that continues in hard places. The Bible says a good man will fall seven times and get up. Just don't quit. Just don't quit. I'd rather have it said of me that I'm struggling with sin than surrendering to sin. So it does not describe this passive, fatalistic resignation, but a victorious, triumphant, unwavering loyalty to the Lord in the midst of the trials. It enables one to stick to the task, no matter what the cost. And then quickly, gentleness. And I love this word. It's really our word for kindness. That's a, by the way, it's the fruit of the Spirit. A humbleness of mind. It sees the minimum of self and the maximum of God. So although consumed with the greatest of causes, the man of God recognizes that in himself, he makes no contribution to, his, to its success 
It's marked by considerable humility. John Bunyan that gave us Pilgrim Progress. I've read that book over and over and I read it. I read it and it was hard to read. I had to read it in uh, English literature in old English. Oh my stars. So then I went and found it in just regular English. Then I found a video series and then I found me a children's edition. <laughs> called Goddess and read every one of them. I made it required reading for my children and paid my grandchildren to read it. John Bunyan said, He that is down need not fear to fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble shall ever have God to be his guide. And then I close with this statement. Activity. What he agonizes for. It, it, it gets a little harder. I mean, it really does. It gets a little harder. Um, there's some things you avoid, some things you assimilate in your life, but you really want to count. You, you're a man of God. You, you want to you wear that title. You want to be a godly man. Uh, you want these, uh, these characteristics to be a product, a byproduct of your life. So now it's moved to an activity, it's something he's going to agonize for. And it's in verse, verse number 12. It says, fight the good fight of faith. And, and by the way, it is, it is a fight. It's a fight. Twelve rounds. It's, we're talking about prize fighting. And, and lay hold of eternal life. So the Christians often referred to or compared to a contest. So the passage describes a person straining or giving their best to win a prize or a battle. It's a good fight. That means it's a, it's a battle worth waging. It's both personal and a corporate battle. I mean, I personally have my struggles and press into Jesus, but then corporately, I'm a minister, a pastor. I'm, I'm out trying to help other men in our churches. So I battle really three major enemies biblically, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I've got a confession to make. I'm not sure which one I'm battling at times. Someone says, I'll tell you, I've had a time with the devil this week. I'm, I'm not sure if it's the devil. I've got a... There's a part of me, the reason I'm going back to dust, it is impossible to redeem it. There's no such thing as redeemed flesh. So even though God redeemed me in my spirit and my soul, I live within a house that is unredeemed. Get that in your mind theologically. And, and, and it's constantly a battle, struggling. So sometimes I think, God, I just believe this is me. This is meism today. It didn't, you can blame the devil. The devil made me do it. The world tries to... Put you into its mold. You tell a person, have you, you, you witnessed to your friend? Um, I don't want to hurt our relationship. What do you mean hurt your relationship? Well, I might run him off. One preacher used to say, where are you going to run him to? Hell number two? <laughs> yeah. Good night. And so what we're doing, our pride, we're more concerned about our reputation and relationship with them than we are their relationship with God. That's why our friends, most of our friends, you ask the average person, 
So your friend, I just heard that guy, really good friend of yours, or your dad, or your dad-in-law, I hear that he's got stage four terminal cancer. Yeah. Um, hey, brother, I'll sure be praying. Is he a Christian? I don't know. I've been quoted so much this week it almost went viral in a statement I made in a conference a couple of weeks ago in Birmingham. And I said, really, that's not what they really mean when they say, uh, do you know if he's a Christian? I don't know. No, what you ought to say is, I don't know if he's a Christian because I've never asked him. So he fights. And there, there's the word. We're about done. Fights. It means he agonizes. It describes the concentration, the discipline, the conviction, the effort needed to win. Hey, Christian life? Christian life. It's not difficult. It's impossible. Christ in you is the hope of glory. God didn't call me to life and say, now go live it. No, he said, work out your salvation. He's saying, I've put something in you that, that wills to do my will. John 7, 17. There's something in you that changes your want-tos. I've placed my nature in you, my, my disposition. I never went to church as a kid. Never. Nobody in our family. I was the first Christian. Dad, alcoholic. Checked out when I was seven. Remember? Mom worked two jobs. None of my brothers and sisters. Six of us. Nobody went. When I got saved, somebody said, you, 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 you don't have to be there every time the doors are open. No, I didn't have to. I wanted to be. I changed my want-tos. I, I wanted to be. I couldn't get enough. Christ isn't a way of life. Jesus Christ, Colossians 3, is my life. So I wanted to be there. And then I got to thinking, and this is just some practical honeyism. Here it is. Jesus lives inside of me. He likes to worship his father. So I take him to church. <laughs> he doesn't like to stay home. By the way, the word fight, don't mean to get deep before we go into breakouts, but it's a, a middle imperative. Let me just give you this. It's a good little, it'll give only language I'll give you. A passive voice, voice in, the, in a text means you're being acted upon. Be filled with the Spirit. You can't fill yourself with the Spirit. God must fill you with the Spirit. That's a passive voice. Well, what's a middle voice? God's calling you to do something. He says, fight the good fight. You, you agonize. You get up. You discipline yourself. You strip off some of this stuff. And you say, well, well I've tried to strip it off. I can't. It's hard to get rid of a habit you're fond of. You, you've got to pray that God help you to hate what he hates and love what he loves. And God help me. And remember, sanctification, Jesus overcoming me. Um, I'll just stop here. You don't know what else I had, so you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> I'm 67 today, and time flies by. Most of you can attest to that. Uh, I was 23 when I started pastoring my first church. I'd only been saved three years. And didn't get a Bible until then. And was a high school dropout with a 10th grade education. And, and finished on a GED and got accepted into a university. Christian university. I started pastoring a church. And a uh, little later on, and I'm going to guess myself, about 28 or 29. So I'll get, let's get personal. 
And I remember a very attractive lady in her church. And by the way, just because you're a Christian don't mean you can't tell if somebody's pretty or not. So a very attractive lady in our church. And I still got it in my mind. And I said to her one day, that's a beautiful dress. To which she responded, flattery will get you anywhere you desire to go with me. Now, I'd like to tell you that I was so full of Jesus that I said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Get out of here, Satan. But I didn't. I didn't know what to do with it right then. So, Pastor, I pondered it. Wonder what it would be like. Am I the only man in here? And I pondered it. She went a step further one time and said, you know, we're not that far and named a, a, a sort of a resort area. She said, we could meet there for lunch and go from there. And those things went. I'm married, happily married, but the enemy's doing a number. And by the way, when you pray, don't lie. Lord, I thank you that I'm not attracted to her and this hadn't bothered me at all in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, I love you. He's, he's up there saying, liar, liar, pants on fire. No, I had to say this. God, you know the struggle of my soul. And I'll tell you, Lord, what I do know. I know the word of God. And I know that to take this one step further would be awful sin in my life. Toward you and toward my wife, my children. So I beg you, stay with me again. Jesus, please overcome me. God, instill within my soul your passion for what's right. And I call the Holy Spirit of God as my witness. Because I can say this is on tape because my wife can say, who was that? <laughs> she knows because here's what I did. I went to see that person uh, when others were around at church and here's what I said privately to her. Um, I've considered your offer. I first of all had to deal with has my life betrayed something of availability because if it did please forgive me God has worked in my heart that is not what I want and I want you to know that I'm praying for you and your husband and I pray that if uh, I ever change my mind God will have changed and then I went and told my wife now why would you go tell your wife a threefold cord is not easily broken. Take Johnny Hunt. You get me out there in the right place. Are y'all with me? Ain't nobody here but us and God. Put me by myself. You can snap me. Put me with Janet and it's harder to snap. But oh, in the name of Jesus, a threefold cord. Jesus, Johnny, and Janet. And I'm telling you, you can't break it. That's what it means, a threefold cord. It says a man is fortunate when he has another man because if he gets cold, the other man can warm him up. If he falls down, the other man can help him up. That's called spiritual accountability. Here's what, how you do it. If you observe anything in my life contrary to being a man of God, would you love me enough to come and see me and confront me? I want to be a man of God. 
Is there a struggle? Yeah. What have you got to do? Agonize. You want to run a marathon? I know what you do to get ready to run a marathon because I've read about it. <laughs> I've never run one. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, wow, he's running. No, I ain't running a marathon. Don't plan to. Never been a prize fighter, but I've known some. I've watched a bunch of them. I know what it, I know what it costs in almost every arena of life to win. And I'll tell you this, if you're going to be a man of God, you won't get there with casual Christianity. And so I want to agonize. If that means somebody says, well, I'm not a morning person. Well, are you disciplined? Are you willing to become disciplined? I get up early every morning because I've been doing it for years and years because I need it. I, I, I teach how to have a good devotional life. So, but you, you get criticized. But I, I, I put this in there. And I know I've got to quit. I'm sorry. Here's, here's what I tell them. The reason I'm going to talk to you about my devotional life. Some of you may just say, oh, you're just trying to brag about how early you get up or what you do. No, if you read me right, the reason I get up early and do what I do is because I'm so desperate. I'm desperate. You have been an incredible group to listen to. If you didn't enjoy it, you act like you did. <laughs> and I'm, I'm grateful, Pastor. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you. For these men, speak into our lives. Speak in their breakouts, in their bowling, everything that we do. Help me, I beg you in Jesus' name, that the day comes when I die. God, may I be in a coffin known in truth as a man of God. Help me to flee those things that want to bring me down. Help me to simulate those things that build me up and help me to run and fight stronger. And God, help me to be willing to agonize and fight the good fight. For Jesus' sake, amen.